Here's the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who would dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I was wrestling this week with uh, the question, if you, if you really ask, what is the most important question that we should be asking these days? And I, I guess my mind would wonder through all these different topics, you could think about if maybe if your mind is drawn to the pandemic, to the, to the super virus, and the age of super viruses. And there's a lot of different ways you might ask a question. Maybe you're thinking about the health side of it. Are we, are we through the worst? Are we safe? Is this, have, did, we, did we flatten the curve? Is it on the better side? Are we going to have a vaccine? Maybe it's on the policy side. Are we doing the right thing? Is this how we want our governments to run? Is this how we want to live? Is this a new normal? Should it be the new normal? Maybe your mind is drawn to you know, the racial tension that we've been working through here these last few weeks. And maybe it's something like, you know, once this all settles down and you clean up the damage, and is there, are we going to actually do something that makes things better? Is there a way forward that changes policies and practices, and maybe, and really, most importantly, that can actually change hearts? Maybe you've been thinking this week about these monuments and that keep coming down and Maybe you ask, I mean, is, is this the way that we want history to be read? George Orwell will talk about renaming monuments as a picture of the endless present, where we're always judging history through this single lens, evaluating everything from the perspective of endless, endless present, a kind of tyranny of the present. Do we want to read history this way? Is this the way we want to be read and judged by future generations? Maybe your mind turns to politics. You know, we began this year with an impeachment. We're going to end it with an election. Can we please restart? I noticed this week I wrote a date filling out a form, and I wrote 2021. I think my mind is ready just to kind of skip past the rest of this year. But maybe in politics, maybe that's the thing. Are the big questions you're asking, who's going to win? Who should win? Is there a way forward that brings unity? Should there be? What kind of unity do we want? There's a lot of bad forms of unity. 
And of course, I mean, I expect we're going to hear more of the next rest of the year. Every, both sides are going to tell you that the apocalypse is coming if the other guy wins. So is that true? <laughs> it feels like a revelation year. But there's a lot, and I, I've thought through all those different issues and looking at others, and the thing that I personally struggled with this year is I've never found myself more dissatisfied is any issue that you bring up. I've never found myself more dissatisfied with all of the offered answers. And I just find myself again and again, I really just, at times just feel like I'm beating my head against a wall because I hear the answers that are coming at us, and I'm like, well, that, that seems wrong. And then I look at the other answer, well, that seems wrong too. And so I've, I'm really, I've really struggled a lot with just this deep dissatisfaction with this, but I don't think any of those are the most important questions anyway. And I, I, if I were to offer one question that we really need to ask in this year, in this moment, it's this. Is the Bible enough? Is it enough? For whatever it is, you think about all those issues and whatever other issues, you've got stuff going on in your life, you've got stuff in your family life, you may be worried about your job, you may be out of a job, you're worried about the economy, you're worried about all sorts of things that you've got on your mind. And say, this is really the question that's front and center, but the question that we need to ask right now, regardless of what's front and center of all those many issues that might be in the front of your life, is, is the Bible enough? And I could frame that question actually theologically and ask a different thing. See, a lot of times we talk about the Bible, we want to say there's a couple like theological terms we throw out. We will speak about the Bible being the inspired Word of God. That's really important. We need to understand that this, this is not a collection of opinions by really smart people. This is not just a collection of stories or myths or legends that have been assembled and passed on to us by you know, folk heroes of past. But this is the actual Word of God. And so when we open the Word, we are hearing from the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, and the, the one who is sovereign, who is king, who is Lord over the universe. The inspiration of Scripture is absolutely vital for us to know that this is what we need to listen to. And the corollary to that, the other theological label that gets talked about a lot, is then the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is without error that the Bible gives us everything we need, that it is absolutely true in everything that it affirms. It's a really important doctrine, really important to understand that we're not looking to Scripture and saying, well, maybe I'll believe that or maybe I won't. We're not picking and choosing. We're hearing, listening to Scripture and saying, this is the word of the Lord, so I will follow where it goes. But then there's that other doctrine that kind of gets cast aside, doesn't get talked about near enough, but it's absolutely vital if you take this kind of broad category of inspiration that the, that's, that the Word of God is inspired. You talk, we will talk, and really the last 30 years, there's been a lot of conversations about the, in, that the Bible is without error, that it's inerrant. But the other thing that we want to say is that the Bible is sufficient. That's really the question. Is the Bible enough? Another way you can ask it, is the Bible sufficient? Uh, and, and the de definition you might give for that is to say that the Word of God... To say that it is sufficient, it says that the Word of God gives us all that we need for life and godliness. There's a lot of echoes of Scripture in that definition. That the, that the Bible gives us enough. If we know how to live our lives, if we know, want to know how to follow God, if we want to know how to be the people of God in this world, to deal with all of this array of questions and issues that keep popping up and getting thrown our way, that the Word of God will give us everything that we need for life 
and for godliness. In the word, we have everything that we need to navigate the days that we are walking through. A lot of Christians have struggled to believe that. And you, in fact, may be struggling to believe that yourself. Um, because there it, is, it is tempting to look outside the word for the source of wisdom that we will follow. But let me offer here, as we look at Revelation chapter 11, that there is something here that can help us to remind us of the sufficiency of Scripture and the importance that that carries for us today. If you don't have your Bibles open to Revelation 11, I encourage you to get them open. I think if you heard me read it, you can hear there's a lot going on here. Um, But remember where we were at. Last week, uh, God called a prophet. And Revelation 10 is a lot about here in the midst of these scrolls as they're being opened up and read, or rather as the trumpets are being blown, that we're hearing at the sixth trumpet that God is now calling the church to join in this work. And he does that by calling this prophet. He calls John not just to be a secretary to record the words or to record what he's been seeing, which is a lot of what's been happening so far. John has been serving as a secretary or a scribe to say, record what you see, record what I tell you, and pass that on. But now he's being called as a preacher, as prophet. And the calling on it was not just to record the words, but to eat the words. Last week it was eat the book. And as he eats the book, now his calling at the end of chapter 10 is to prophesy, to speak the word of the Lord to the nations. And so really what's following here in chapter 11 is this picture of a prophet. And, and a lot of what's happening, if you want to make sense of the first half of chapter 11, what you're seeing is a preview of everything that's going to be following in the chapters ahead. That you're seeing a picture of the prophet's place and the events that unfold. And I think there's a lot of diverse opinions, a lot of interpretations, a lot of confusion around Revelation chapter 11, as with anything in Revelation. Um, and I think if you get that in, in mind it can really make a lot of things that follow in the chapters ahead clear, or more clear. Um, But he is a preacher. He's a prophet. He's speaking the word. But there's more than that. If you think about the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was a teacher, but that doesn't mean he just spent his time talking. He, He One, he taught in particular ways. A lot of times he gave parables. He told stories. Sometimes he lived out demonstrations. You know, he would kind of let them see this kind of a visible picture of what they do. Um... Sometimes he did miracles to to show them something of what the kingdom of God was like. There's different dimensions. And here, a couple of things happen. The first thing that happens is this picture of a prophet who's called to do something, to show something of what he's going to do. And it's this very odd, kind of confusing picture of him measuring the temple. It's the first thing that happens. So he's, verse 1, he's given this measuring rod like a staff. I think some translation would be a reed. And he says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now that seems odd. He eats the book, he's ready to prophesy, and the first thing he's called to do is become a construction worker. You know, just carpenter, just pull out the measuring stick, uh, just start measuring. Well, what's that all about? Well, he's, he's one, he's following Jesus' path here, is that he's pairing preaching with visible acts and parables that instruct. He's showing us something of what it is. And, and here, when he's measuring the temple, it's, a, it's a, a very clear echo of a moment in the Old Testament. It's in Ezekiel chapter 40. And here, in, in Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel 
um, God has him see a man who is measuring the temple. And the thing about measuring the temple in Ezekiel is that moment is a way of bringing shame on Israel for their sin. Because the temple of God in Ezekiel is a representation of Israel, of ideal Israel. This is who you are supposed to be. You are my temple. And as he measures that temple, he said, that's the way that you're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to live. And you're not, because you're lost in your sin. And so it's it's an act, really, of separation and judgment that Ezekiel is witnessing and he's prophesying about to the people of Israel to say, you're not who you are supposed to be. Here, this measurement is a picture of the church. Measured things in Revelation, really throughout Scripture, measured things are God's things. We've seen that a number of times. There's times when there's very specific counting. We talked about maybe the the counting of the 12,000 from each tribe, the 144,000. That's a picture of measured things belonging to God. One of the ways that you can see a difference in interpretation. When you have measured things, specific numbers, those are things that are related to God. And then when you have kind of hordes and masses and swarms, those are generally related to demonic realms. Measured things belong to God. This kind of unidentifiable masses belong to the world, belong to Satan. Measured things are God's things. And you think about difficult doctrines we struggle with, but things like the doctrine of election, our predestination, are reminders that God knows his bride. That when God came for his church, he doesn't say, I'm going to redeem this kind of big amorphous blob called the church. And I don't really know who's going to be part of it, but I'm really hoping somebody will join. No, he's got your name in mind. He's got my name in mind. He knows you. He knows me. When he says he's building a tribe, a church from every tribe and tongue, he's got people in mind. God has foreknowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. God knows who's going to be part of his church. Measured things are God's things. So here, John is measuring the people of God. But second thing is, when he measures the people of God, that distinguishes holy things from profane things. What does he say in verse 2? Well, measure the temple, measure the altar, measure those who worship there, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations. Now there's, again, a lot of distinction or debate about which temple is he talking about because the outer temple was used differently by Herod's temple at the time here in the first century than it was by Solomon's temple. Uh, I think the key is you can I'm not sure when they, when they interpret it, they take it a slightly different directions, but really it winds up in the same place that this act of division is an act of, of separation that you know, you know, you're going to know that some are in and some are out. The measurement says, well, here's, here's the measured thing, here's the non-measured thing, and that's given over. The, and that's, a, that's true of the ministry of, that John is getting ready to unleash. It's really the true of the ministry of preaching and prophecy That the preaching of the Word of God says that this is what it is to be a follower of God. And when you say this is the marker, then some are in and some are out. It's a moment that divides. You know, I remember when I was a prosecutor, we always talked about it was, you know, speed limit laws were really frustrating because it was very frustrating as a prosecutor because, you know, nobody really enforced the law strictly. 
um, they, they always had, like, you know, most police officers, they, they, I mean, maybe I'm giving something away, but most of them that I knew said, well, I'm never going to pull anybody over for less than 15 over the limit. And they just said, it's just not worth their time. It's just, you know, they, they just had their quotas, and they had plenty to pick from, just starting at 15 over. But they would have a little code when they would write those tickets, and as a prosecutor, I'd see these codes every day. They wrote what actually was happening. So I knew, like, they might, they might even write the ticket for, nine over, which would make it easier on their insurance than if it was 15 over. And they would write the ticket just to let, help them out and let them just pay it off and be done with it. But he'd write what was actually happening. But every now and then, there'd be something. And there'd be some weird story, and some guy would be charged, along with a whole lot of other things, he was actually driving like two miles over or one mile over. And he'd come in and fight and say, look, you never enforce that. You're not going to charge me. It's like, well, I can, because that's the limit and you're over. There's a clear separation. It's a clear line. There is no doubt. That work of preaching, the work of the gospel, is a dividing thing. Jesus says, there are some who are my sheep, and that means there are some who are not. And that's, that's a hard truth. And that's really, if we're going to be faithful as the people of God, we've got to recognize that our ministry as a church to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel is a, is a ministry of division. And some are not going to like that. Do you really want to know that you're on the out, that you're on the outside? That's, that's an uncomfortable truth. But that's what the ministry of the Word does. The ministry of the Word, as much as it, by calling people out and saving some, is to call others to say you're out. It is an act of division. And, and, and they respond in kind. Because what they do is they're left out, they're given over to the nations, those who are left out don't like it, and they trample the holy city for 42 months, that's verse 2. The measured church will persevere in suffering, they will trample the holy city. Now the holy city, that echoes for us, probably many of you say, well that sounds like Jerusalem, right? And I think that's, again, big debate over what city are we talking about. Let me suggest to you that this is the holy city in Revelation, generally, and maybe all the time, is going to be a picture of the church, the new Jerusalem. That's what, what is happening is you're seeing a battle between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. You're seeing Jerusalem as that physical city in the first century, in the 60s, that was God's place. You know, he had done so much in that story, but, but the people of Israel, by and large, had rejected Jesus, and in rejecting Jesus, they were separating themselves. They were showing they were not part of the fold. And that old Jerusalem is a symbol of a people, of the people of God turned against God and inviting a judgment upon themselves. This is a picture in terms of historically, if you want to see what's happening, this is a picture of a time-limited persecution of the church. That 42 months is an echo from Daniel that you see what they talk about time, times, and a half time is what they'll say at the end of Daniel. It's a picture of 42 months. It's also 1,260 days, but you're going to see in the next verse. Those are different ways of describing the time, the same thing. Three and a half years. A time for Daniel, it's the time of desolation. It's interesting, one, that it's actually, that, that's a symbolic number. And I think any version that just says it's got to be some strict period of time is probably going to miss something. But actually, in this case, it's actually pretty close to being accurate, that, that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, 
um, that, that, that there was an actual persecution from Nero against the church between AD 64 and AD 67 that lasted about three and a half years, that there was a time of persecution that the church experienced that was very real. But the fact that it's time limited is the one to say God's still in charge. God's controlling this. But the church is going to persevere in the midst of suffering. That's the first piece of this picture that he's painting. He has measured the temple. The ministry of the word is a ministry of measurement. It separates the people from, of God from those who are not true followers of Christ. And in that separation, we can expect that some will react negatively. And in fact, the church can expect at times to undergo real persecution for our faith. The second thing that happens, much longer description here, is kind of a parable kind of a picture of these two witnesses. Verse 3, he grants authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So there is this picture of these two witnesses that rise up, and again, in some interpretations of, of uh, Revelation that emphasize kind of the future thing, they're expecting there's going to be two actual people sometime in the near future. I don't think that's what's happening. I think one, the idea of two witnesses probably should make us think of Moses and Elijah. That's probably who they would have thought of when they hear about two witnesses as a picture of the faithful church. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. In all of this, these two witnesses are pictures of a church that is faithful. The fact that there are two, biblically, suggests authenticity. There are two witnesses. We can trust the witness of two witnesses. You need two witnesses to really trust. You need two witnesses to convict. It's a, a picture of a faithful witness of the church and what they are doing for these three and a half years, 1260 days, um, the 42 months of tribulation that's just been described in verse 2, is they are faithfully uh, preaching and ministering in a, in, and their form is a kind of lament. They're clothed in sackcloth, which is a picture of mourning. They're grieving the sins of a nation. The church, in the midst of persecution, the response of the church is to mourn for the sins of their enemies, to grieve over the sins of the people around them. Maybe it's a different response than we think of. Uh, when we see, when we endure sin or evil, when we see evil surrounding us, when we see the evil of our nation, when we see our, our nation doing evil things, our first response biblically should be to put on sackcloth, to mourn, to grieve for our nation, to pray for our nation, even when we become the target of that evil. That's the work of the witnesses. They are faithfully witnessing. And what happens? Well, there's a description, verse 4, there are two olive trees, two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So they're, 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 the olive trees and lampstands, that's an echo from Zechariah chapter 4. And in there, there's a picture of, of Zerubbabel, the king, who's completing the temple. And as he's called to complete the temple, he completes it. And it says, not by might or power, but by my spirit. Um, they, they are, they are there in Zechariah 4, there are angels who are witnessing to the faithfulness of God that, that there is a spiritual power that will come upon his people to finish the work that he has called them to. Here, the church is rising up and taking the angel's place in Zechariah chapter 4. And the church here in Revelation 11 is shining forth as faithful, as the faithful witnesses. It's, and that's a really a theme that occurs throughout Revelation, that the church steps into the place of angels to be 
carrying on the mission of God and the mission of Christ to the world. That's a, we're going to see kind of deliberate pieces where what once angels did, by the end of Revelation, people are doing, the church is doing. That's a pattern that we see over and over again in Revelation. But as these prophets, as these witnesses work under spiritual power, theirs is an extraordinary power. The church has an extraordinary force, preaching the Word of God, bringing the Word of God to the world. They have a protection that hovers over them. Verse 5, if anyone harms them, fire pour, pours from their mouth. That fire perhaps echoes 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah has a fire that consumes. The word of the God and the mouth of the, of the faithful will confront, confront others. Here, it, as a fire that consumes, if anyone harms them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky. No rain may fall. They have power over the waters. It's a power of plagues. This is actually paralleling things we've been reading about over the last few chapters in the trumpets and the, and the bowls. The, the, the prophets, the church, the Word of God has the power to confront people. They are bringers here of divine judgment. This is a powerful word. But this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It convicts us of our sin. It brings out the fact that we have no standing before God on our own power. We, it brings out the fact that left to our own devices, left to our own strength, we are hell-deserving sinners in need of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the Word of God to convict of their sin, to draw people out, and to force a confrontation. And as much as the Word of God can bring life to some, it brings death to others because when they hear the Word of God, they hate it. They turn against it. And indeed, that's what you're seeing here in Revelation chapter 11, that they are hearing this Word of God, resenting it, calling out against it. They have all this power, but then, verse 7, when they finished their testimony, three and a half years that they're preaching with power and doing all this amazing stuff, the beast that rises from the pit makes war on them and conquers them and kills them. And their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. There's three images there I want you to note. First, it's Sodom and Egypt. I mean, it's Sodom. There's your biblical picture, Old Testament picture of true, uh, of true evil, of just a, a hedonism that has rejected God, that pursues pleasure to its own end. Here's a picture of a, of a place that is destroyed because they embody that form of evil. And of course, Egypt is the image of the ultimate oppressor, the one who enslaves the people of God, who seeks to destroy the people of God. And both Sodom and Egypt are pictures of, of evil that is judged by God. And who is Sodom and who is Egypt here? Well, it's, it's a city. It's the place. It's the great city where their Lord was crucified. And again, so many times, people just look over that little piece of that description. Who, where is Jesus crucified? It was Jerusalem. This is the old Jerusalem that is now the, has become the embodiment of, really, Rome. Uh, a lot of times people talk about, well, this is a description of Rome. Well, it's not Rome. Well, not entirely. It's kind of Rome, but it's what Jerusalem has become. Rome is threatening the church right now. Jerusalem is threatening the church right now. And here in Revelation chapter 11, Jerusalem has become Rome. They're the same thing because they are so turned against Christ. But they destroy them. Seems like a victory. But that victory is short-lived. 
where they had three and a half years of power in their ministry. Now, verse 9, three and a half days the people are celebrating. They're leaving those bodies out as an insult, um, and they are celebrating over their death. But, verse 11, but after those three and a half days, after that time of celebration where it seems like they've won, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Here, the martyrs are being brought back to life. Martyrdom accomplishes, ultimately here, what preaching does not. They rejoice for a time, and they get three and a half days of celebration, and that three and a half days is actually kind of an echo, counting inclusively, of Jesus' own resurrection. The, the church is going where Jesus has led them, to suffer for their faith, to be sacrificed, and to rise again from the dead. And as they rise from the dead, verse 12, they hear this loud voice saying, come up here. And they go up to heaven in a cloud again, like Jesus. And their enemies watch them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, which is an echo of Zechariah 14, verse 4, where the day of the Lord brings this earthquake. But here, there is this destruction, but it's a destruction of a tenth of the city, 7,000 people. And actually, that's a reversal of 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. And, and what happens in 1 Kings 19 is that there are 7,000 witnesses that um, are actually still around. The prophet thinks that he's alone. He says, you're not alone. There are 7,000 witnesses that I've raised up that have been faithful. Here, it's not 7,000 witnesses. It's 7,000 that are killed. And the rest were terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. There actually is a picture there in verse 13 of a turning, really a mass turning. Some are coming back to Jesus, not because of that faithful preaching, as important as that was. That preaching actually put many to death because it brought judgment on them to show that they were not ready. But in their resurrection, as the church rises again, people see the truth of who God is, who Jesus is. Their martyrdom accomplishes what their preaching can't. So what do you do with all that? There's the second woe. We'll talk more about the woes here in a few weeks. But verse 14, that's a picture of the second woe that closes. Three things I would suggest to you. One, to remember that we are known and marked by God. The church is a measured church. We are not forgotten. We are not ignored. We are not overlooked. God sees you. You are one of his children. And you are called to be his witness. You are known and you are marked by God. And that's a vital thing for us to remember in these days. The second is that our witness to the gospel will divide, but it will also bring life. The, the gospel divides. It brings boundaries. It, it actually separates boundaries first in our own heart. When we read the gospel, when we encounter the word of God, the first thing it does is it brings the fact that, that we're sinners. We can't actually just look out at the big bad world and say, man, they're getting it wrong and they're getting it wrong and they're getting it wrong without really confronting the gospel and say, oh, actually, I get it wrong too. I'm a sinner in need of grace, in need of redemption. And actually, my engagement with the world always must be reminding myself that I'm first saved by grace so that I can faithfully bring the word to the world. The boundaries are created first in our own heart but the gospel confronts. It confronts us and it confronts others. And any kind of concept of sharing the gospel or sharing our faith or witnessing the world or ministering in the world, any kind of concept that leaves off the fact that ultimately the gospel is a confrontation will do a disservice to the gospel. Third, our really only effective witness 
is to follow the way of Jesus to the cross. Martin Luther used to talk about the way of the cross versus the way of glory. That the way of glory is the path of power and the path of prestige and the path of human strength and human ability. We're going to get this done because we're something, because we're important, because we're impressive. And that won't get it done. What we have to follow is the way of the cross. We die to ourselves. We lay ourselves down. We sacrifice. And in that death and resurrection, we live something of what Jesus lived. And we have something to say. And I think in this kind of year, election year, we're looking to, a lot of times it's a temptation to try to triumph through political power. Usually political power means you're compromising. But the church is uncompromising here in Revelation 11. The church is faithful. The church is who the church is. And in our faithfulness, that's where God brings life. Resurrection is our path as it was Jesus' path. Our faithfulness in hardship and struggle will accomplish what our best efforts will not. And so we come back to that question. Is the Bible enough for us today? Is the Bible sufficient? What we're reminded here in chapter 11 is that God has always created and redeemed through his word. It's the word of God that creates life. And it's the word of God that actually creates resurrection life. His word is the way of life, and it is the way of salvation, then and now. His word is enough. As much as we might find our heads spinning in these days and looking all, all sorts of ways to find some kind of answer to all these challenges and problems that are before us, we have to trust in his sufficient word. God's word is enough. There's enough here in the Bible to give us a path to life and godliness. Trust in his sufficient word and faithfully carry it in your day. Let's pray. God, I ask your blessing on us. Help us to trust in your sufficiency, the sufficiency of your word. Trust um, and teach us how to follow you, to be faithful to you. Even in the midst of challenge and hardship and suffering, help us to follow you in the way of the cross. In Christ's name, amen.